Well, we are sort of in a three-part series uh, leading up to Easter morning, and so <clears throat> we are basically going through the end of the book of Matthew. We, before that, we looked at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, so we've fast-forwarded to the end of the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 28. Last week we looked at the first uh, verses 1 through 10, and so we'll begin in verse 11 this morning. Uh, as this, uh, really, we think of, of Matthew 28 often as, as the Great Commission, but it also is the resurrection, and those two things are, are tied together, I believe. So that's our text, Matthew 28, and, and we'll begin in verse 11 in a moment. And, and really, this is uh, the core of. of uh, the resurrection itself is the core that if really you need that. If you don't believe, if you question, if you doubt other things like that is the thing as, as believers that uh, we stand on as true. That, that really happened uh, in, in my understanding of Christianity. Uh, that we affirm that and that, that really changed, that changed everything else for us. Uh, even though I really didn't, I, I don't think I embraced that faith, that the, the resurrection, the whole story of Christianity, I didn't really come to embrace that until I was about 15. But the, the story of Christianity, just, just the, the whole message of it, really has been around kind of in my mind and in, you know, in maybe my subconscious, uh, really my, my whole life. It wasn't because I was brought to church as a young boy. I didn't have parents that... Brought me to church or read the Bible to me on a nightly basis or, or prayed with me. Uh, but I've shared before with you that, that I did have a grandmother, a, a faithful Lutheran grandmother, who brought me to church at times when I was uh, at her home. And when I was born, I, I think I've shared this before as well. When I was born, I was a, a premature baby and I weighed 2 pounds and 11 ounces. And I know that's hard to believe today. <laughs> but, but I did. And uh, the doctors were not sure that I was going to be able to see or walk or have much cognitive function. And, and if I did, I would probably be kind of dependent on my parents for, for all of my life. And, and they weren't really sure how long that life uh, I, would, I would have. And so uh, as soon as my grandmother, she was present at my birth, and as soon as they allowed her to have physical contact with me, she brought me over to the sink that was in, in the, the NICU where my incubator was, and she brought me over to the sink, and she scattered some droplets of water on top of my head, and she said these words, Matthew Lamar Richard, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And even though as a Baptist today I've come to affirm a different method, a different mode of baptism, and I believe it's supposed to be done at a different time in someone's life, this was sort of the beginning of, of the Christian story influencing me, having, having an influence in my life even before I had any agency over my own self. And, and so as I grew, uh, she would take me to church sometimes, uh, she would uh, take me to, to, the, to the Lutheran church. And, and I, I remember, you know, like most casual churchgoers that are there on the high holy days, I remember the, the big things, the things we did around Christmas, the things we did around Easter. And one of the things I remembered at the Lutheran church was, was Palm Sunday. It's, it's not something we make too big of a deal uh, of in Baptist life. We'll have our children's program on that Sunday. But, 
the thing that stuck out in my mind on Palm Sunday, it was, it's the Sunday when we would uh, read the scripture of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, you know, before he was crucified. And everybody's shouting out and, and saying, Hosanna, and, and, you know, expecting him to save, save them physically. And, and, and they're laying down palm branches. And I remember we would commemorate that in the Lutheran church by literally there was just one single aisle and we would lay down palm branches. And, and I wasn't too concerned about the story, honestly, as a kid. I just thought it was cool that at the end of the service I could take those, some of those palm branches home. And they fit really great into a sweatband and you could all of a sudden be in India and you pretended they were feathers. Or I could take five or six of them home and I'd set them up and I'd hide in them and pretend to be, you know, some... Guy hiding in the Amazon rainforest from some tiger or something. And so I thought that was pretty cool. And that stuck out in my mind. And then came Good Friday. And on Good Friday, my grandfather had this tradition of, of planting. He would always try to plant a garden on Good Friday. And uh, that was one of the times where I could go and I could spend all day if I, helping him playing in the dirt. And I could get dirty and I wouldn't get in trouble for it. So that was really neat too. And I remember doing that and then having to get cleaned up. And I would uh, go to, to the Good Friday service at the Lutheran Church, which quite honestly at the time I didn't really understand. And I found it kind of gloomy and sad. And then Easter Sunday I would go to church. And, and the old organ would play that hymn, Up from the Grave Heroes. And it would proclaim that and... Even though I didn't completely understand what all was being proclaimed in that hymn or from the sermon, I knew it was something to be joyful about, something to celebrate. And so the Christian story was framing my story kind of in an implicit way, even before I really received it. And then when I was 15, you know, if you asked me years ago, you know, what, what made you accept Christ when you were 15 at a youth evangelism conference. And, and years ago, <clears throat> if you asked me that question, I might have said, well, it was, you know, the, the preacher, when he spoke, he presented the gospel. Or maybe it was something in some of the music that we sang that, that opened my heart to receive the gospel. Or maybe it was even a feeling that I had that the Holy Spirit impressed upon me. But the truth is, today, almost 20 years later, I don't really remember what the speaker said. I don't remember any of the music that was sung. And quite honestly, I don't... I don't remember much about what I felt, but I remember the way that the old Lutheran sanctuary looked, littered with palm branches. That's still in my mind. I remember getting cleaned up uh, after helping my grandfather in the garden and going to the Good Friday service. And I remember the Easter service. And those are in my mind, and, and they've just been back there. And I think even though I was 15 when I finally received that, the story of Christianity has been around influencing, supporting, and, and maybe even preparing me for that moment. And so when the resurrection story, when the story of our faith frames our lives, it, it makes a difference. People, people notice that. We notice that. Especially when it's compared to people who do not. And in Matthew chapter 28, we have two different stories. We have the, the stories of, of the women that were first at the tomb that we talked about last week. And then we're going to have the stories of, of the guards and the chief priests who really try their best not to affirm the resurrection. And we're going to see how their two stories are framed and the way that they're different. Listen to Matthew chapter 28, <clears throat> beginning in verse 11. While the women 
were on their way. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we are asleep. We're asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. For all of us, most likely, even if you've not professed faith, somehow, some way, the story of Christianity has come to your mind. It's, you're aware of it. It has at least some part, maybe, in, in, in what you understand, probably. And so if that's the case, the, this morning, I, I just want to share some things with you that you need to be aware of regarding what we believe, or regarding this story of our faith, this true story that, that really happened. And the first thing is, as you probably know, the story of our faith, the story of the resurrection, is really one that we believe is true, but it's one among many others. This past week, my family and I took a sort of a mini vacation to San Antonio. And, and San Antonio is a city itself that has a Christian history. It has a Christian name. And if you go around the city, you see the buildings, you see the churches, you see the statues. And, and there's very much a Christian history to the city. But all you have to do is, is walk around and you notice that that's just one story among many others that frame people's lives. The hotel that... Uh, we all stayed at uh, was owned by, by a family that uh, they were dark skinned and, and I made the assumption that they were of, of Indian descent and so one morning the kids and I went down for, for breakfast at the breakfast bar and the kids are woofing down their Texas shaped waffles you know that you can get and their, their frozen sausage patties that they just think great and, and, and as they're doing this it's about 928 Two minutes before the breakfast bar closes. And as they're doing this, this guy comes down, 928, notices that, you know, as he's fixing his breakfast, well, they're low on juice. They're low on waffle mix. That's fruits picked over. And he starts griping. He starts griping to this young girl who I made the assumption at the time was, was the daughter of, of the manager of the hotel. And, and he's saying, you know, I paid full price for, for a room and... You know, you go, you need to get the manager on the phone, Patel or whatever his name is. You call him and you tell him, uh, I'm not going to, I paid full price and I was promised breakfast. And, and if I don't get breakfast, I don't think I need to pay full price. <clears throat> and this man was wearing a cross around his neck. And I listened to this man sit at, sit at a table the whole time, griping and muttering racial slurs under his breath about the, the, the cheap Indians that owned the hotel. And I watched this girl who was probably college age run around and try to wait on him and satisfy his every demand and need. And I wanted to go up to her and I wanted to say, please know that that if this guy's a Christian at all, like that's that's not how we, we all are. That's not us. That's not our story, you know. But at the end of breakfast, I just got up and I had the kids and I just said, I just just I want to say thanks. We appreciate you. And I could tell by her reaction, her startled, somewhat kind of uh, uncomfortable reaction, that that was not something she was used to being told. And then we went back up to our room, and I opened the drawer on that little table that sits between the two beds. And sure enough, there was a Bible on one side, placed by the Gideons, 
And right next to it was the Bhagavad Gita, which is which are the whole part of the holy writings of of part of the uh, the Hindu faith. And as I looked at those two books sitting by, side by side, I thought about how two representatives of those faiths I just brought a witness in, in the lobby, and I witnessed the way that they acted, and, and I and I prayed that that woman, who most likely was uh, was Hindu at least had some other representative, some other story, some other understanding of Christianity other than the one that was just shown to her. You know, if you read today's text, you read those who, those that don't embrace the faith, don't embrace the resurrection, the guards, you kind of read them as the bad guys, don't you? In verse 11, it tells us the guards reported to the chief priests, not, not Pilate, the chief priests, all that they'd seen, all that happened, Beginning from the time when we read last week that the earthquake and the angel, they reported all that to them. And so I think these guards, these soldiers, were, were temple guards, not Roman guards, because they didn't report to Pilate. And, and, and reporting to them, they're told that, that what they need to do is, is if anybody asks, just say, well, you, you fell asleep. And you consider their status, you consider who they are, you consider their story. Really, they're at, other than the women, right, that we already read about, they're at the bottom of the totem pole. They're just these, these little soldiers, these little temple guards that answer to, to the chief priests. And really, the chief priests are in the middle, and then Rome and Pilate are at the top. And so they find themselves in this situation, in this story, where they're just, they're just trying to get by. They're just doing what needs to be done. And regardless of what they really thought about Jesus, their position sort of just dictated that they had to go along with what they were being told. They were the ones, the, the people that were directly over them. Their supervisors, if you will, the chief priests, they were the ones mocking Jesus. Remember what the stories about the crucifixion? And they're mocking Jesus and they're saying, if you're really the Savior, come down from the cross. Remember? That's who their bosses are. And so when they say, hey, just tell people, Tell people you fell asleep, and when you woke up, uh, you know, Jesus' body wasn't there. Well, they're, they're going to do that. We're not surprised when they do that. And we're not surprised that their reaction is very much different from the reaction of the women who, who, who knew Jesus, who listened to Jesus' teaching, who, even though they struggled to believe it at the time, heard him talk about how he was going to come back from the grave. Their, their, their reactions and their stories diverged. They're very different. And we're not surprised at that. And so we're not surprised today when we see stories of people who live in, in cities with a Christian heritage that claim a different faith. Or even people in a town like Gatesville with a church on every corner who, who have a different faith. It's one story. Our faith is one. It's among many. And so we're not surprised by that. At the same time, because of that, we're not surprised when people oppose our story. We're not surprised when people not only believe something different, but but oppose what we believe. And I know you've heard the stories about the way Christianity has been opposed, some in our culture in recent days. Maybe, maybe there was a story you heard about a baker that, that made a cake and, or would not make a cake for, for a couple that he felt like their wedding violated his conscience and, and his, his business license was revoked. Maybe you've heard stories about uh, crosses in public parks that certain groups have decided they need to come down and they've lobbied courts and, and made cases out of it. You know, I get, some of you don't even know that, that 
this is a thing, but ministers get a housing allowance. Robert knows about that. He does my taxes. And, and there's actually a, a court case where minister, the, the housing allowance for ministers is coming under fire because they say, well, this, the ministers, if, if we favor them, it's showing a favor of, of religion. And gosh, I know that those of you that, that grew up hearing the Pledge of Allegiance recited right before, right after a prayer that was recited on your school intercom. And now we have a moment of silence. I, I, know, I know that for you that looks like things aren't looking very good. I know that for you it looks like things are, are declining, that, that our culture is becoming more secularized. And, and I can't argue that it's not necessarily. But I don't bring all that up to... To say, well, this should or shouldn't happen. That's, that's not the point. I think there are nuances to all of those things. I, I bring them up to point out the simple fact that we aren't the only ones that, that have a certain faith, that have a certain story. There are other people that believe different things. And really, you know, you remember Jesus' words? He said, if you're not for me, you're, you're against me. And, and so even though people may not be Trying to be against our faith. And if you're not for faith in Christ, there's a sense that you are against it. You know, the, the guards at the tomb are in a very precarious situation because their job entails that they can't be for Jesus. Their, their job mandates that, that they can't. Now, I think it might have been interesting if, if they wouldn't have been temple guards, if they wouldn't have answered to the chief priests, maybe if they would have been Roman guards, because, because what they're told to do is unthinkable. Especially if you've answered a pilot, and you know the kind of person the pilot was. He had, he had a horrible temper, and you know he, he killed people just for kind of sneezing funny at him. For them to go and say, well, you know, we fell asleep doing our job, would have, would have been akin to suicide for a Roman soldier. But for these soldiers that answer, that answer to the chief priests, Probably, it scared them a little bit to do this. But the money that they get helps a little bit. They get a bribe. And, and they don't answer to Pilate. They answer to the chief priests. And who's to say that this report in verse 13, that, that his disciples came during the night and stole his body away. Who's to say that to some degree, they, they're not somewhat convinced of that. Remember, they never saw Jesus' body in the account that we read. They saw an angel that Matthew tells us appeared like a flash of lightning. And so whether or not they understood that as an angel, we're, we're not really even clear. We have to hear their report to the chief priest that we don't have. They report to the chief priest all that they saw, this, this light, this lightning. And, and then they, they passed out. And they don't know what happened. And so maybe this idea that they did go and steal Jesus' body. His followers, you remember his followers? Remember how they acted in the garden? Remember what Peter did? How he pulled his sword out when the guards came to arrest Jesus? And then he went to cut off one of the guards' ears? Well, gosh, his, his disciples are militant. Who's to say they didn't come in and steal his body? It's not too far of a leap. And so they, they oppose Christianity. They oppose Christianity because, gosh, it's convenient. It, it kind of made sense for them to do so and... I think throughout history, when people oppose Christianity, they do so because it's advantageous to them in some way. It kind of makes sense for them in some way. And, and for us in the Western world, that's kind of new. Opposition to our faith is, is kind of new. And, and we don't like it. 
But at the same time, we also have to recognize that it has always been a part of the Christian story. Why do you think that the church over time became known for things like setting up homeless shelters and hospitals? Why do you think that it's, it's the church that were the ones that did soup kitchens and things like that? It's because historically, Christians didn't see themselves as being superior, as being over, as being better than those folks. In fact, they said, you know, society kind of sees us like those folks, so, so it, it doesn't hurt us to help them. And so when we encounter the Hindu hotel worker, or we encounter the, the kid at school youth that, that is weird and strange and no one likes, or we encounter the, the person at work that's just difficult to deal with that no one likes, or, or the parent at, on the ball field that is belligerent, we share our story with them. We do so by the way that we live because we don't really have a choice. We have a different story than they do. And that doesn't mean that we like it if our faith is opposed, but it does mean that we recognize that when people oppose our faith, that they do so for, for lots of reasons. And, and because there's lots of, of things that influence them. Gassan Thomas led one of the few public churches uh, that emerged that in Baghdad after Saddam Hussein was taken down. And in his little church... Emerged and he put a sign on the old building that they sort of reconstituted as a church. And the sign said, Jesus is the light of the world. And the church was raided by Islamic radicals. And they nailed a piece of cardboard to that sign. And it said, Jesus is not the light of the world. All it is, you have been warned. And the note was signed, the Islamic Shiite Party. So in response, Pastor Ghassan loaded up a van full of food, full of supplies for children. And he brought it to the Islamic Shiite headquarters. Because all those things were very scarce in the days following uh, when Saddam Hussein was taken down. And, and he brought them to, to the, the, the head person. He's called the Sheik. And, and he said, Christians have love for you. Because our God is a God of love. And, and, and he said, if I could, I'd like, I'd like permission to read to you from John chapter 8. And he granted him permission. And he, he read Jesus' words. I am the light of the world. And he showed him this piece of cardboard. And, and, and what uh, the, the Shiite militants had written on it. And immediately the Sheik apologized. Because he understood that, that even though their faith was different, they were... This, they were living out their faith. This was their story. And he apologized. And, and we learned later that this same sheik attended the ordination of the pastor at his church. And that's just one story. And I know for every story like that, there's, there's others that don't end well. But the point is that many case, in many cases, when people oppose Christians, when they persecute Christians, when they limit... I won't, I won't use the word persecution for what happens here, but when they limit our freedoms... Here, They do so almost always because, because they're misguided about what Christianity is really about. They haven't really understood the gospel. They haven't really understood the message of, of Christ. But they're opposing something that they perceive. Something that, that they're wrong about, most likely, about Christianity. 
And whether that perception is shaped by the Islamic extremist environment or, or the secular rational environment it is not really the point. The point is that it becomes most important for us in times like that to live out this faith that we really believe. Verse 11 at the beginning of our text is, is the last that we hear of the women in the story in, in the book of Matthew. It says, while the women went on their way. On their way to do what? On their way to tell all the men that ran away because they were afraid that Jesus had risen from the grave. And, and to meet him in Galilee. And that's the end that we hear from the women. And then verse 15 sort of summarizes everything that's happened. So the soldiers took the money. They did as they were instructed. And this story has been circulated among the Jews even to this day. And we have two different stories. We have the story of the women. We have the story of the guards. And, and they're, they're side by side, but they're totally different. And how do we know that, that the women made it to where they were going? How do we know that they were successful in what they were given to do? Well, the next passage in the book of Matthew opens up with these words. The eleven disciples went to Galilee. And so Matthew, unlike the other Gospels, Matthew says there's not even a point in relaying what was said between the disciples and the women. He says they went on their way. And it's obvious that what they went to do, they did. Because then the disciples met Jesus in Galilee. And you know, sometimes when we're faithful, when we're faithful to, to our story as believers, sometimes it's, it's kind of like what happened to those women. We go on our way, and, and we're not known for doing anything amazing. We're not known for, for fame or fortune. We're not even known maybe as someone like Billy Graham that, that did something great for the Lord. We just go on our way. And our way is framed by the way of the cross and the resurrection. And when you do that, you can be sure that the way that you go is going to be different than the way that others go. Sometimes it might contrast with others. Sometimes it might conflict with others. But as it does, you meet that hotel worker or, or you meet that person that wears a Christian t-shirt and jewelry and thinks that who they are, whether it's their faith or whatever it is, people just owe them things and they're entitled to things or... You meet that person that really has no connection to God at all and, and doesn't have any connection to the Christian story. And you have a different life that you've been living, and that becomes your witness. It's not just the words that you say. It's a whole different story that you've lived. You know, I find it fitting that my grandmother, my Lutheran grandmother's favorite hymn is a hymn that, that really a lot of Baptists sing by a lady named Fanny Crosby. You might know that name. It's a story, it's a song called Blessed Assurance. And the chorus of that song says, this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. And maybe you've, you've heard that Fanny Crosby was, was blind almost from birth. That's true. And, and maybe you've heard that she wrote, or you know that she wrote lots of hymns. Just flip through your, your hymn book and you'll see many that she wrote in addition to that. She also wrote lots of poems. She wrote some patriotic songs. But in addition to being blind, she had, she had significantly increased hardships other than that. Her, 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 her husband, who was also blind, and, and her had, a, had a, a child. And they had one child, and it, it died not long after it was born. And, and her husband had struggled with depression before, but this was just sort of the, the thing that sent him into this free-willing depression. And, and they didn't have medicine and things like they do today. And he just he lived out his days depressed and he never left the house and 
And here she was, this, this person that kind of become famous among Christian circles and, and was invited to go sing here and, and, and present things that she wrote there. And, and she would do all that alone as her husband sat at home by himself. And eventually he died and, and left her widowed. And that was always a struggle for her, having to do all of that by herself, being married to someone that really, really contributed nothing to their relationship for most of their marriage. Yet she sings, this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. And it's something that we sing about today. Because her story, her faith in the resurrection is also ours. Let's pray together. God, we are just great, grateful for, for a story that's different. And God, it's possible for, for us sometimes to... To look at others that may think differently or have a different faith and maybe even others that, that oppose our faith. And rather than want to share our lives or share our faith, to, to oppose them right back. God, thank you for the reminder that from the very beginning, our faith was opposed and yet it overcame. And we know that, that it will. That it will. We know the end. We've read the end of the book. And so would you help us to live as the faithful women did as we go on our way, whatever that entails for us as believers. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.